two seed Wildcats of Arizona. The Princeton Tigers. It's never been sweeter if you're a Princeton fan than right now. Yes, sir. That was the final buzzer on Princeton's manhandling of Missouri in the round of 32 as the Tigers advance to the sweet 16. How long has it been, may you ask? 1967. Now, we're going to split hairs here a little bit because back then only 23 teams participated in the NCAA tournament. Now, of course, there's 68. So back then, Princeton had to win just one game to advance to what's known as the regional semifinal with 16 teams. You heard Ernie Johnson, you may have caught it, on television during Princeton's uh, post-game report from the studio. The great Ernie Johnson, one of the best sports studio analysts and sports studio host, I should say, in the business, say that Princeton goes to the Sweet 16 for the first time in program history. And I was like, ah, it's not the first time, Ernie. Come on, where's your research department? They've been there before. How about the final four year in 1965? You mean to tell me they didn't get to the, the Sweet 16 then? And then later, Ernie Johnson uh, came back and, and he apologized for how they presented it and said that it's the first time since they've been calling it the Sweet 16. And that started in 1975. So, okay, bottom line is Princeton has been in this position before, right? They have been down to the, the final 16 and the final eight and the final four, if you will. So you know what? It doesn't matter who's right. The bottom line is we acknowledge that Princeton has been in this position. They've been to a, a final four with the great Bill Bradley, the Hall of Famer, right? But if you want to say sweet 16, okay, I get it. So it's obvious that, that this one is more impressive, right? Because Princeton had to beat the Pac-12 champs in the mighty Arizona Wildcats. I mean, Arizona is a great basketball program. I'm not taking away from their greatness, but come on. There, there are a few blue bloods, if you want to call them that, who have been softer in the NCAA tournament than Arizona because now they're the first team ever to lose to two 15 seeds in an NCAA tournament. All right, but look, Princeton was the better team. They were the better team against Arizona. They were the better team against Missouri. And now we're going to find out if they're the better team against Creighton because that's where they're headed next. And they're not the only team from the tri-state because everyone was talking about Fairleigh Dickinson. They were the true Cinderella's from the first round. Harvard on the Hackensack, as our friend Seth Greenberg calls it, right? With the greatest NCAA tournament upset ever. FDU, shocking. The Big 12 regular season and the Big 12 tournament champions. The mighty Big 10. How many teams did they get? Eight. How many teams remain? One. I mean, you talk about, and I had arguments with friends of mine, right? That, oh, we're beating up on each other. What a great conference. No, what a mediocre conference. That's what I said. The Big Ten was mediocre all year. Not to take away that they're not very good teams, but there was no elite team. You can't tell me, well, maybe you can, but in my opinion, last year's 
Purdue team with Trevion Williams and Jaden Ivey would have beat this Purdue team by double digits. That was a great Purdue team that St. Peter shocked. Oh, did, did I just say another 15 seed from New Jersey? I mean, hello, Purdue. I, and, and Rutgers beat them. Look, I don't think Purdue and Matt Painter want to see any team from New Jersey on their schedule next year, okay? Because they're going to run. I mean, Rutgers has beaten Purdue as a number one team in the country twice, once in each of the last two years. And now Purdue has lost to St. Peter's, a 15 seed, and Princeton, a 15 seed. They do not want to see another New Jersey team. I mean, New Jersey teams are running circles around Purdue. So, yes, one year after St. Peter's knocked Purdue out, FDU does it, and then they came within a 6-0 run, as Tobin Anderson said, the head coach of FDU. They came within a whisker, a run late in the game that would have beaten Florida Atlantic and sent FDU into the Sweet 16. We're going to talk about FDU, and of course, we're going to talk about UConn as Dan Hurley gets the monkey off his back and gets UConn back to the Sweet 16 for the first time since 2014. So we have three teams from the Tri-State that really took over this tournament in different ways. We're going to get to FDU and UConn, but we're going to begin this show with Princeton, the lowest seed remaining in the NCAA tournament. The only Ivy League team left. Well, they were the only team that got in, right? So that goes without saying. A 15 seed from New Jersey. So as Princeton prepares for their matchup in the regional semifinal with Creighton and Louisville, Kentucky, they were nice enough to make assistant coach Brett McConnell available. Rutgers fans, you know Brett very well. The former four-year manager at Rutgers. His dad, Kevin, is a longtime administrator at Rutgers, who's worn many, many hats at different levels. And Brett is the associate head coach under Mitch Henderson. He's been on the staff there since 2012. And it's my pleasure to welcome to the Tri-State College Basketball Podcast, Brett McConnell. Coach, thanks so much and congratulations. What a time for Princeton. Thanks for having me. What a time is right. It's been, it's been unbelievable and I uh, appreciate you having me here today. Yeah, listen, I appreciate you making time. I know you guys are, you know, it's a whirlwind. You're, you're coming back. You're taking a red eye from the West Coast, and now you're getting ready for Creighton. So I do want to talk about that matchup with Creighton. But first, I just want to ask you about all of this attention that you're getting. I mean, how are you guys handling all this stardom? How are the players handling it while yeah. you're still trying to focus on winning a game here? It's been it's been wild. You know, Brian, first, the, the Arizona game for, uh, Thursday, which was the, 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 the first win. Um, the second it ended... I grab my laptop, I'm in the locker room, and I'm trying to get ready for Missouri. And really didn't have much time to soak that up. Got, I think, five or 600 text messages. By the next night, maybe got back to some. Um, and then the same thing happened after the Missouri game. And I, I literally had, I think, seven or 800 text messages Sunday morning when we got back from the flight to try to get back to. And 200 of them, I could not find. I had to go to my <laughs> IT person, and just like, hey, where can I find these text messages? I want to get back to people. And it's a, we say it all the time. It's been a great problem to have. Um, just the, the attention that the university is getting, that the, the program, the department is getting, our individual guys, I mean, I'm sure they're getting 
much more attention than than me and even some of the coaches. Uh, Coach Henderson and, and Tosan Awoma were on CNN today. Um, they've been everywhere. So it's been really fun. We certainly want to soak it up. The fact that now we have almost a week uh, to soak up this Sweet 16 stuff is awesome. But we're, we're trying to be Creighton. And so when the guys get down here for practice after after classes, it'll be all about beating beating Creighton and getting ready to, to prep for them. Yeah, exactly. By the way, there's a class picture here. So these students have to go to class in between games. And that's an excellent point. But listen, like you said, these are these are problems you welcome and that you don't mind having. So let's talk about the Arizona game, coach, because what amazed me about this win was you didn't hit a lot of threes. It's not like it was one of those games where they're like, oh, Princeton shot the lights out. They had one of those games. No, you didn't. Yeah. You beat a Pac-12 power, the Pac-12 champions with defense, with rebounding, with athleticism, with heart. Most would say kind of unvery Ivy like. Sorry, Brett, but <laughs> yeah. you know, that's the perception. Well, not only Ivy League, but I think the underdog in general, right? The underdog in March Madness usually wins, making a lot of threes, you know, playing, you know, with with uh with small ball taking a lot of threes, making a lot of threes. And, and you're right. I think we were four for 24 or four for 25 from three against Arizona, which is really poor for us. Mm-hmm. We're a very good three-point shooting team. So, you know, if you had told me heading into that game that we're going to shoot that percentage from three, I, I would have thought we'd be in, be in some trouble. But it's a credit to the, to the toughness, uh, the grittiness. That's been something that um, we've talked about all season, but I think we've really – We've really been peaking the last few weeks with our with our interior defense, our toughness inside. We've been a really good defensive rebounding team all season. We've been exceptional offensive rebounding team probably since league play started. Um, so we really capitalized on both those things. And and I think the 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 other part that stands out, Arizona's two bigs are huge, bigger mm-hmm. than any two guys we've seen in our league. And Keyshawn Kelman, Zach Martini, Cade Pierce. Anybody who switched onto those guys was just incredibly tough and physical around the basket. And that was the difference. I mean, Umar Balo might be one of the largest human beings in college basketball. Uh, but Keyshawn Kelman, I mean, that that guy I said it in my last podcast, he probably benches, you know, 630 pounds. So he's a specimen. Uh, he was up to the task. He's a specimen for sure, for sure. <laughs> and you know, I will say this: we watch these guys on film. And you know they're going to be really, really big. And, and and a lot of times when you see a guy in person, you're like, man, they're even bigger than I thought. But when we went out for starting lineups, Keyshawn and, and Balo stood next to each other. And I certainly didn't think Balo was small, but it puts in perspective how big and strong Keyshawn Kelman is. I mean, he's a high major big in every sense of the word. He's physical. He's tough. He's athletic. Um, and it, it, it really evens the playing field when the 15 seed in Ivy League school has has somebody as imposing as Keyshawn. No question. Uh, how about the bench, the way they really stepped up uh, in really most notably Martini and Peters in that first game? Yeah. I mean, Martini mentioned his toughness. I mean, he is that that's who Zach is. That's that's from from the day one of recruiting him, his motor, his toughness, his physicality, his willingness to to do whatever it takes to win. Um, has been evident and it shined in the brightest lights. He picked a, a great time to have one of his best games of his career. Um, also making shots on the perimeter. He had one of those threes. We only had four, so we needed him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was he was phenomenal. And then Peters, who I think had the other three threes. Now that's been Blake all season. 
that's who he is. Like you just know if he gets an opportunity to get one up, you feel really confident about, about it going in. And um, he was really timely and making, making some big shots for us. I'll tell you what, Brett, I, I had the pleasure of watching you guys up close and personal against Yale in the Ivy league championship. And I, I was impressed with both teams. I mean, Yale's got some dudes, they have athletes uh, all around the perimeter and inside, but so do you now you've gone up against these teams in the Ivy league all season, right? Yeah. This is not your father or my father's Ivy league. This is not Penn and Princeton and everybody else. Uh, the level of play in the Ivy league, how did it prepare you to face Missouri and Arizona? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Brian. I, th I think, Ken Palm has now, um, after our win over Arizona or maybe the win over Missouri, I think we moved up to 12th as the 12th best conference in the nation. We moved above the A-10. So How about that, that? That puts in perspective the level of play in the Ivy League. You mentioned Yale. Penn had a great season. Cornell was really good. Brown. I mean, the league top to bottom was really good. And, and especially at the top and through the conference tournament, we, we became really well prepared. We played Penn. The last day of the regular season, we played them in the semifinals. Then we played Yale in the final. And uh, we got everybody's best best punch, you know, um, the game plan against Tosan, the way uh, we get scouted against in our league. Like, um, it's really, really hard to win in the Ivy League. And um, not to say that anything's easy when you get out of the league, but there is um, there is something that that makes it different when the teams don't know you as well and they haven't scouted you all season. Um, and then you, you mentioned the physicality and athleticism, and um, it's not it's not as big a jump as people make it out to be. It's it's really not as big a jump. Um, I think maybe Arizona and and Missouri had a, a greater number of these athletes, but we see those same athletes in our league. How about the way your team has defended, Brett? Uh, during the season, you weren't necessarily the best defensive team. Uh, you had to win in a lot of ways. I know you beat, I think it was Dartmouth in overtime, 93 to 90. But since postseason play has begun, uh, your level of defensive efficiency, I think, has gone through the roof yeah. and, and been at an all-time high for this season. Would you agree that this team defensively is playing its best basketball? Without question. Without question. I think I think a level of focus, focus, attention to detail, um, on all the little things it takes to win have have risen. Um, you know, we play in some young guys, play a couple freshmen, played three freshmen a lot this season, um, and and a good group of uh, of, of underclassmen too. So um, I think just the the experience that that you gain throughout a regular season and the and the level of focus increasing has been has been a part of that. Um, and then our different coverages, we've mixed coverages up, ball screen coverages, defensive coverages, and, and we feel really comfortable going to whatever coverage we choose. And I think being able to keep teams off balance, doing some different things and, and being able to execute each of those coverages at a high level has really helped us. So Blake Peters, Zach, Zach Martini were the heroes off the bench against Arizona. You go into Missouri and you have one day to prepare and I noticed throughout the entire first half, no sign of Blake Peters. As a matter of fact, he didn't come into that game until maybe midway through the second half. And I was like, they're playing six guys. They're on one day rest. Where's Peters? And then all of a sudden, <laughs> it's like it's like you and Mitch Henderson planned it. Blake, Ke Blake Peters comes off the bench and hits, what did he hit, five three-pointers? <laughs> I mean, I, 
you can't you can't tell me that was the plan, Brett. But the fact that he came in and just was an absolute assassin, it couldn't have worked out any better for you. Yeah, I think he played. I think he played one or two minutes in the first half. So okay, not, not much. I'm sorry. I think he played a minute or two. Not not many. Not many. But, but I'll tell you, heading into the game, we knew that there'd be drive and kick opportunities for threes, and we and we we expected to play him a, a good amount. We really we really did. We probably should have played him more in the first half, but we're up close to we were up 14 with three minutes left in the half. We gave up a 7-0 run to finish the half. So we're up 14 in the first half. We're in pretty good shape. I thought the rotation, you know, it worked. It worked for most of the half. And the second half, um, and and in fact, towards the end of the first half, Missouri played some zone. Um, and Blake is a, a total zone buster. So you know you got to play him against zone. And, and we wanted to play him regardless. Um, but that second half, things got a little bit tight. He was in and out for a, a, a minute or two. And then when he really got a chance to get his um, to get his feet set, to be in the game for a kind of consistent minutes, he took over. He took over, and I'm so glad he did. He broke the game open. And um, we're really confident he's going to make shots. We really feel that way about him. And, you know, the truth is, Brian, this it sounds crazy now. We're in the Sweet 16. Those seven guys that we played pretty exclusively these last two games, it's hard to find enough minutes for all of them. I mean, Keyshawn Kelman, I think he had eight and six against Missouri. I don't have the box score in front of me. I think he had eight and six. In only he did. 15, That's exactly what he had. In, in 15 minutes. In 15 minutes. And it's like, shouldn't he have played more too? There's a lot of guys that are just really playing well at the right time. And um, it's a it's a good problem to have that you're, you're not sure how to get enough minutes for everybody. Brett, I love everybody on this roster. You know, even uh, Xavier Lee, you know, and 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 everybody who comes in this game can contribute something. I mean, he's the guy that came into the Ivy League championship. I think he was, you know, pretty much ice cold off the bench, gets fouled late in that game and, and hits two big free throws against Yale. So obviously, you know, you have key contributors, but when you have the roster that you have and a Langborg makes threes in the first half and Martini makes threes in the second half. You see this every day in practice. Does anything, has anything that they've done surprised you? No, I'll be honest. It, it doesn't surprise me. We see it all the time. What I'll tell you is, and we've talked about it a lot this season is I thought throughout the regular season, we hadn't had a game where, where all these guys played well the same day. And, and I felt like, um, to be honest, even the Arizona game, Langborg and Alaco, if you look at their shooting numbers, did not have great days. We won with our defense and toughness. But I, but I felt all season, if, if everybody can play well, at least, at least a big group of these guys can play well on the same day, Tosan, Langborg, Alaco, uh, Pierce, Kelman, Martini, and, and Peters off the bench. I mean, if, if you get a handful of those guys making shots, it can be um, – we can be really formidable, and and I felt like we're starting to see that um, these these last two weekends, really, where everybody has been playing their best basketball at the right time. And coach, it also helps you have a luxury like like a Caden Pierce who can grab sixteen rebounds in a game. So, coach, I want to get to Creighton because I know we only have a few minutes left. What can you tell me about Creighton? I'm sure you've watched their game against Baylor. In my mind, they have the best starting five in the country. Uh, what sticks out to you the most? I mean, they're really good. They have they have a great big. I think he was defensive player of the year. Nembhard, uh, yep. sorry, Calc uh, Brenner, who's who's really talented. And then they surround him with four shooters. And you know, it's hard when you face good one on one players and their shooters 
spreading the court. Certainly we know that at Princeton, it's hard to guard. And so they're a really balanced team. They're really good offensively. They're really good defensively. If you look at their numbers, the metrics, I mean, they are really well-rounded, uh, good ball club. In fact, I think they were underseeded, right? Like to be a six seed and to be 12th or so in Ken Palm, um, that's, that's uh, I think they were the highest rated six seed in the tournament. There's no team that you face that you don't have confidence against. I love the confidence in your team. Uh, you know, you've said, they've said all along, like Matalaco, hey, you know, we belong. We're here to win. So what is, without giving away the game plan, you know, what do you have to do uh, to advance to the Elite Eight? Well, I don't think four for 25 is getting it done, right, <laughs> Brian? So we got to make shots. That's that's who we are. That's That's what we've been. Um, we've got to we've got to be great on the boards. We've we've had really consistently great efforts, defensive rebounding and offensive rebounding here for a couple weeks, and I think that's going to go a long way. We have to take care of the ball. We've been really good at taking care of the ball uh, on this run here these last couple weeks as well. So uh, the same keys apply, and then and then really good defense, closing out on on some shooters, some guys that can shoot and drive, garden garden Kalkbrenner in the post um, are going to be keys. And listen, Princeton out-rebounded Arizona by 138-37. You out-rebounded Missouri by a long shot, plus 14 on the boards. So you've had success rebounding. Coach, the last question I want to ask you, because you've been at Rutgers, you've been at Princeton for 10 years now. Uh, when the team wins like this, I'm sure I know you're gathering attention uh, amongst you know schools around New Jersey and even in New England maybe to be their head coach. Are you thinking about that at all and, and making that move to become a head coach? Yeah. I mean, um, it's been, a, it's been a goal of mine for a long time to be a head coach and, and certainly a, a dream to be a division one head coach. And, and that is my next step when it, whenever that time comes, whenever the time is right, when, when the right opportunity arises, but this has also been a dream, right? Being in the Sweet 16, riding this out with these guys that I love and coaching staff that I love and players that I love and people that I love being around. So um, I'm really not giving that too much focus right now. I, to be honest, I just don't have enough time to focus on anything other than us trying to beat Creighton and continue this run. Uh, but that is my goal. That is uh, a dream of mine, and, and I hope that that's my next step. All right, Brett McConnell, I know it will be your next step at, at some point, but I really hope your next step is beating Creighton and getting to the Elite Eight. We'll be watching. Let's and do it. Thanks so much. Let's do it. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. Go Tigers. Take care. All right, there he is, Brett McConnell, associate head coach at Princeton, and what a fabulous job he does. Uh, the next thing he's going to do is, you know, start crossing off the other hundred or 200 or 300 texts that he has to get to on his cell phone. No question about it. Uh, he and Mitch McConnell aren't going to get much sleep over the next several days, but you know what? Sleep is overrated, right? Sleep in April. This is an opportunity for Princeton to make history. They've already gotten to the sweet 16, whatever you want to call it, the regional semifinal for the first time since 1967. Now the question is, can they get to an elite eight? Can they get to a final four? Can Princeton in Ivy League school get to a Final Four? That would be the first time since 1965 and a player and a former politician from New Jersey known as Bill Bradley was in a Princeton uniform. That would be remarkable. But hey, if anyone can do it, it's Princeton. All right, now what I want to do is I want to talk about FDU 
and UConn in that order. First, let's talk about Fairleigh Dickinson. This team has set the college basketball world on fire. Princeton has carried that torch into the next round. And Fairleigh Dickinson was right there with Florida Atlantic. You talk about a performance by a 16 seed. It's the greatest upset in NCAA tournament history. The smallest team in Division I beat one of the biggest teams in Division I with the National Player of the Year and Zach Eady. They made Edie over the final 13 minutes invisible. I'm going to almost say he was useless. You didn't even notice him, the job they did against him. But don't think for a second that FDU didn't have something to do with it. What Tobin Anderson has done, I tweeted this out. All right. The player of the year and the coach of the year votes have already been cast. The James Naismith coach of the year nationally, right? It's probably going to go to someone like Matt Painter or Nate Oates or Kelvin Sampson. Book it right now. One of them is going to win it. Take those votes away and let's redo the votes now. Tobin Anderson would get my vote and get a lot more people's votes. This is a guy who's done it from every level. He's done it the hard way from division three to division two to division one. Not many coaches in the history of college basketball have been able to make those leaps. Why? Because too many people say, oh, you have to become a, an assistant coach at the Division I level. Well, you know what? He checks that box too because he was an assistant coach at Siena. This guy brings energy. He brings fight. He brings charisma. I mean, he is a star. And you know what? Fairleigh Dickinson came within a 6-0 run from making it into the Sweet 16 and becoming the first 16 seed ever to get to the Sweet 16. The team last year, the program won four games. Well, that's, that, the story is four games to where we're We were a 6 nothing run away from the Sweet 16. We won, they won four games last year. Like, what kind of, you know, have to have that kind of people around you, the kind of character we had to fight through that and to be resilient. Like, that's, un, that's I don't know about sports stories. That's going to be one of the most amazing. Because, like, people are saying, who was, I, was watching? K-State. K-State, Jerome Tang, really good friend of mine from Five Star years ago, right? Yeah, what a great job. He's done a great, he's done an unbelievable job. They're 15, you know, 15 and 17. They're still 15 and 17 last year. We're 4 and 22. 4 and 22 to 1. We're right there to go to Sweet 16. That, if that's not one of the most amazing things I've seen in my life or anybody else seen, I, I you know, that's crazy. And so, yeah, I, I, there's every, every part of this I'll remember for forever. And they, and they will too. Purdue, top five team. Florida Atlantic. Number 25 in the nation. And they came within that much, that much from getting to the Sweet 16. And don't think for a second that they didn't deserve to be there. Look at their schedule where they came from at the beginning of the year. I mean, they lost to VMI, Virginia Military Institute, who finished last in their conference. They lost to University of Hartford, 
a team that is in transition from going from D1 all the way to D3. Next year, Hartford will play a Division Three schedule. That doesn't happen either. University of Hartford, with a depleted roster made up of whoever's left over from the players who didn't transfer out because they want to play Division I, University of Hartford beat Fairleigh Dickinson. My guy at Sacred Heart, Anthony Latina, beat them twice. It doesn't matter. Those wins are great for those programs, but none of them are sitting where Fairleigh Dickinson was. Even Merrimack, who won the conference tournament, and we've already talked about that, right? They need to change that rule. Fairleigh Dickinson, a team that was runner-up in their conference, that took advantage of a loophole and a four-year waiting period for teams transitioning from Division II to Division I, FDU took advantage of their opportunity. And isn't that what life is about? Being prepared for the moment and when that opportunity comes, when your number is called, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to drop the baton? Are you going to panic and pull a Cindy Brady in the Brady Bunch and pull a deer in the headlights when that red light in the camera comes on? Is that what you're going to do? Or are you going to take that baton and pull a Forrest Gump and run, Forrest, run, and keep on running? Because that is what Fairleigh Dickinson did. Merrimack and Sacred Heart and Stonehill and every other team and, and St. Francis, they can all say what they want. But you know what? They're happy. At the end of the day, Anthony Latina and Sacred Heart, they're happy for what Tobin Anderson did. How do I know? Because he told me so. All right, how can you not be happy for another team in your conference having success and bringing notoriety to your conference? And also, did you know this? Because Fairleigh Dickinson won that game, they earn $500,000 for that conference for the next five years because they got into the second round. That's revenue that the conference can, can take and split with their members. That's revenue that... The Northeast Conference can take and pull in and maybe get games next year on SNY or MSG locally, right? They can take that number and they can take that money and they can bring more exposure for their conference because of that one win. So if you don't think this is big for notoriety, it's also big in the Northeast Conference pocketbook and all of those teams. However, the presidents and the athletic directors in that conference choose to use that money. So this goes beyond, right? It's, it's like college football. And when your team makes the Orange Bowl and whatever the payout is now, you know, $15 million, I don't know, I'm throwing a number out there. Whatever the payout is for your team to go to the Orange Bowl or the Sugar Bowl, right? That money is divided amongst the Big Ten or, or the Pac-12. Well, this money that Fairleigh Dickinson won is divided. However, the Northeast Conference chooses to divide it. So thank you, Tobin Anderson, all of the coaches, top to bottom, thank you. And now Tobin Anderson and Fairleigh Dickinson have made history by becoming the first Northeast Conference team to make it to the round of 32 
by becoming the first team in FDU history to put them on the map and beat Purdue and beat a number one seed. Good for Tobin Anderson. Good for Fairleigh Dickinson, a program that won just four games a year ago. One of the most miraculous turnarounds in Division I history. And don't tell me that he's a D2 coach. And don't tell me that Dimitri Roberts or Grant Singleton is a Division II player. Those are just labels because those dudes can play. Did you see the way Dimitri Roberts was, was like a water bug running around? I mean, is there a faster player in college basketball than Dimitri Roberts? It's pretty close. I've seen some great players in college basketball. Uh, I was not old enough to, to know or see Rocket Rod Foster from New Britain, Connecticut, from St. Thomas Aquinas High School, who had an amazing NBA career. But I am old enough to have seen Allen Iverson and most recently Russell Westbrook. Those dudes are like the fastest guys I've ever seen with the basketball. Well, Dimitri Roberts who was a star at Division II, who never had a Division I scholarship offer, proved this year and in this tournament as he was running circles around Purdue's guards and as he was blowing by Florida Atlantic's guards, he is one of the fastest players in Division I, and that dude can ball on any team. FDU has heart. They have guys that had an amazing run, and they will never forget this for the rest of their lives. So good for Fairleigh Dickinson. What a run it's been for all of us to enjoy it. And mark my words, Tobin Anderson, even though he's only been at Fairleigh Dickinson for one year, don't be surprised if he becomes a head coach elsewhere very soon because I'm hearing things. And maybe Iona could be a landing spot for Tobin Anderson. Don't be surprised. And some people might say, well, he's only been there for one year. Yeah, but he's been building towards this on the Division II level and at five-star basketball camps for years. So people know him. People know he's a winner. People associate with him. And people may want him to be their next head, head coach. We'll see what happens in the next few weeks, especially as Rick Pitino likely makes that jump to St. John's. That Iona job is going to be a coveted job because Tim Kloos and Rick Pitino have laid the foundation there. That is a winning program. That is the best program that the Mac has ever produced. It's Iona and everybody else. And if you can do the job at Fairleigh Dickinson, you at least deserve a look at a place like Iona, and he probably, he definitely wouldn't even have to change his address for the second straight year. So it's a perfect opportunity and could be a perfect marriage for both Iona and Tobin Anderson. And now let's get to UConn because Danny Hurley has finally done it. He had been to the second round before twice with Rhode Island, but since he's been to UConn, Dan Hurley was 0 for 2 in NCAA tournament games. And trust me, I said it in my last podcast, if Dan Hurley and UConn did not get past the first round, they would have heard it. The Huskies would have really heard it from their fan base. 
I felt there was pressure for them not only to win the first round, but get to the Sweet 16 because that puts you in elite company. That puts you in select company. And that is where a program like UConn expects to be every year. And then beyond that, they expect to contend for the Final Four National Championship. But the first step in that process is to get to the Sweet 16. All right? That puts you in select company, no question. And Hurley and company finally got there. They rode the shoulders of Adama Sinogo, who put up beastly numbers. Adama Sinogo put on a, a one-two performance in the first and second round that very few have ever done in the NCAA tournament. He scored 52 points and grabbed 21 rebounds in the two wins over Iona and St. Mary's. He's the first player, get this, since Blake Griffin at Oklahoma to have more than 50 points, 20 rebounds, and shoot 70% or better in the first two games of the NCAA tournament. I mean, he couldn't have done anymore. Now, the problem was in the first half of the Iona game and the first half of the St. Mary's game, you had a player like Jordan Hawkins, first team, all Big East. First round projected pick in this year's NBA draft goes scoreless. That might have been, and I'd be willing to bet it, the first time that Jordan Hawkins has gone scoreless in the first half in back-to-back -back games in his career. All right, maybe he did it last year as a freshman, but I can guarantee he didn't do it this year. Hawkins could not have played any worse in the first half in both games. Now, granted, he did get into foul trouble against St. Mary's and had to sit for most of that half. But without Jordan Hawkins, UConn struggled in the first half in both games. Don't believe me? I mean, you saw the games. Iona led by two at half. St. Mary's would have been leading if not for a last-second three by Tristan Newton that put UConn up one. So in both games, with Adama Sinogo dominating, Jordan Hawkins struggling, UConn was struggling. Do you think there's a pattern? Do you think it's a coincidence? No. And then what happened in the second half? UConn dominated each second half. They outscored Iona, 50 to 24, and they outscored St. Mary's 39 to 25. So in the second half, they outscored St. Mary's by 14. And in the second half, they outscored Iona by 16. And what was the common theme? The common theme was Jordan Hawkins woke up and became Jordan Hawkins in both games. Against Iona, he scored 13 points in the second half and hit three threes. And then in the second half against St. Mary's, Hawkins also played well with 12 points. So Hawkins struggles, UConn struggles. Hawkins wakes up, UConn wakes up and wins by double digits. And I was going back and forth with, with my brother, my brother-in-law and my cousin in a group chat and, you know, we're talking about UConn during the game. 
And my brother Craig's like, you know, you kind of so much depth. They should be doing more. They're doing this. They're not doing that. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. But if Hawkins wakes up and he starts scoring, then maybe UConn wouldn't be in this position. All right. Yes, they have depth. But when Jordan Hawkins struggles, it puts more pressure on Newton or Calcaterra or Andre Jackson to do more than they need to do. You need your role players to contribute. You need them to have big moments, but you need your stars to do the heavy lifting. Adama Sonogo was doing the heavy lifting on his own with both arms. Jordan Hawkins finally did his share of the lifting and you saw the difference in UConn's game. Now, maybe my brother, my brother-in-law, my cousin didn't see it that way. Maybe they disagree with me. That's okay. But that's the way I look at it. UConn has had a three-headed monster all year. They need three players to score. And against St. Mary's, it was Sonogo and Newton, and then it was Hawkins. St. Mary's is good. Iona, I mean, Rick Pitino did a fabulous job getting that program back to the NCAA tournament. I mean, they have players. Jenkins and Clayton are fabulous. Nellie Jr. Joseph is heroic, but he's not Adama Sonogo. And you saw what UConn did once Hawkins got hot. They kept feeding the beast. They kept feeding Sonogo. And there is nobody on Iona and there is nobody on St. Mary's that has the physical attributes to be able to stop or slow down Adama Sinogo. And you saw how dominant he was. Now, the next matchup against Arkansas is going to be fascinating. It, it would have been fascinating against Kansas, but look, Arkansas has dudes. And I know that they struggled during the regular season. I know that Arkansas finished in the middle of the pack in the SEC. What'd they finish? Ninth place? I know that Arkansas struggled down the stretch and lost six of nine heading into the NCAA tournament. But as our old friend Tommy Emmerker once said when he was at Seton Hall, you've heard me quote this before, it doesn't matter how well you're playing before the tournament. It matters how well you play once you get there. And Arkansas is hot. And guess what? They're experienced. This is the third time they have advanced to the Sweet 16 in a row. So this is not their first rodeo in the Sweet 16. They're not going to be phased. And as a matter of fact, they've been to the Elite Eight. So they've won in the Sweet 16. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to win this game but they have the experience. UConn is there for the first time. Hurley is going up against another great coach and Eric Musselman. Now, I wish he'd keep his shirt on, okay? I mean, dude, you want to celebrate? You, you want to go crazy? You want to go batshit crazy? I mean, did you have to take your shirt off? I mean, you know, okay, he's got a nice dad bod. I'll admit it, but dude, keep your shirt on. Some people thought it was great. All right, you know what? Dan Hurley takes his shirt off. Let's have a flex off, 
Okay, and then let's see who has the better dad bod. Uh, all right, on second thought, let, let's get those thoughts out of our minds, okay? <laughs> but we're not doing a pose-off. We're not doing a dad bod contest. We're doing Arkansas against UConn, and I think it's going to be a great matchup for UConn. Can they get to the Elite Eight? Can this team and this program take one more step to get to the final four. It's not going to be easy. On the other side, you have UCLA and Gonzaga. I'm going to go public right now. I did pick Gonzaga to get out of this region. I picked them to beat Kansas in my original pool. I'm sticking with that. I think Gonzaga is the team. I would love to see UConn get past Arkansas. I think they can. I think they will. But I think this is finally the year that Gonzaga and Mark Few get over the hump. Why? Because there's less pressure on them. There's less people picking them. And sometimes teams thrive more in that environment. Just my two cents. Just my two cents. But it's a great region. I mean, if you have a chance to be in this West region in Las Vegas, my gosh, any one of these four teams can go to the final four. And if I had to reseed them, I would go UCLA one, UConn two, Gonzaga three, Arkansas four. If I had to go by, by seeding them. Now, some people might put UConn one over UCLA and I get it, but I'm just saying on paper, if you go by seeding, I, I would give UCLA the nod and go one UConn two, Gonzaga three, and Arkansas four. For my money, it is the toughest region left. Any one of those teams can win a national championship, starting with UCLA, UConn, and Gonzaga. I would not be surprised if any of those three, the winner from this region, wins the national championship. All right? The, the, the team on the other side that I would put in their category is Alabama. Because that team is, is playing on a high level at the right time. Now, they placed, they played Gonzaga during the year. They played UConn during the year. So there could be a familiarity if one of those teams, you know, face Alabama in the national championship. So UConn is back. Now, I will say it officially. In my mind, people have been saying all year, UConn is back. No, UConn is back back they've gotten over the hump i think there's still work to do for them to win a big east championship next year the year after that is always the goal at uconn but the fact that they've gotten to the sweet 16 a program that prides itself with four national championships and a program that prides itself on getting to the second and third weekends in the ncaa tournament this program is back and i'm happy to see it I just want to say one more thing. Congratulations. A shout out to Brookdale because Brookdale has won the division three Juco national championship. So shout out to Brookdale. They won the national championship over the weekend. And while we were all watching the NCAA tournament, Brookdale for the third time in their history has won a Juco national championship. So congratulations to them. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for downloading the podcast. 
Keep spreading the word. Give us a review. Please go on and rate us if you like what you hear. If you like the content and the guests we have, please tell your friends about it. Keep spreading the word as we try to spread this podcast throughout the tri-state of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. My name is Brian DiNovellis. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time right here on the Tri-State College Basketball Podcast. So long.